and then if you're staying behind, we're going to continue with 1 Thessalonians. So you can open to 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Alright, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and last week we, we started looking at verse 10. So let's just read verse, verse 9 and 10 together. Um, verse 9 says, For they themselves show of us what manner of entering we had unto you, and how that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So last week we looked at that continuation from verse 9 and how it says that you turned to God from idols and to serve the living true God. So we said that three things that need to be part of every Christian's life is repentance, service, and a patient hope. So those three fruit need to be part of your life as a Christian. And then we also saw, it goes on to verse 10 and it says, and to wait for his son from heaven. And so waiting Apart, apart from, or as a part of the, um, the end of verse 9, where it says you were, you turned to God, which means there was a past tense, and then there's, there's a service, and then there's a waiting. So there are three tenses that need to be part of your Christian life. A point of salvation, current service, and a future hope. Three tenses that need to be part of every Christian's life. Then we also started looking at the second coming of Christ, and how the second coming of Christ is mentioned in each chapter in this book. I showed you those verses. So the second coming of Christ is a great part of this, this um, book that Paul wrote. And then we looked at only, well, we focused only on this phrase, and to wait for his son from heaven. And we said that this waiting is an active kind of waiting. The waiting that something like a pregnant woman would have when she's waiting for this child to be, to be born and how that should change the way you view life, it change your conduct, it forces you to be ready and then also it's a hope of this coming um, child that, is, that, that comforts you. And we also said that Jesus, it says you're from heaven, and so Jesus is currently in heaven where he intercedes for us, where he is our advocate, and then also where he's preparing a place for us. And we look forward to that day, and we hope actively for the coming of Jesus Christ. So now, let's get into... Further with this verse, so the verse 10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. So before we, before we go into the resurrection, we need to ask, why is Jesus dead? Okay. So if Jesus obviously had to die for him to be resurrected. Now, I'm sure you're familiar, familiar with this, this, or some of these verses we're going to look at, but you can go to Hebrews so long, Hebrews chapter 9. Now the question is, why did Jesus die? Romans 6 verse 23, as I'm sure you're familiar with, says, for the wages of sin is death, right? A wage is something you receive for something you did. Labor you did, something you did, you receive a wage for that. So in other words, you worked yourself into death through your sin. And the payment for that is that death. So the wages of sin is death. So if, that is, if the wages of sin is death, why did Jesus die? All right, let's look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. It says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood 
there is no remission. So without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. Okay? Now, Jesus had to die because, they, as we see, there has to be a shedding of blood for there to be a remission of sins. The wages of sin is death. Now, look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. So, if the wages of sin is death, but Christ had no sin, why did Christ die? Right? That is the question that we need to ask. Well, Hebrews chapter 9 hinted at it, and it said that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So there had to be, some sin had to be paid for, but it was not his own. All right? 2 Corinthians 5, the last verse in 2 Corinthians 5 it says, for he, that is God, hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. So God made Christ sin. And that is why Christ had to die. Not because of sin of his own, but because of our sin. You see, God has said that the wages of sin is death. And each one of us have sinned. Each one of us have missed the mark. Each one of us falls short of God's glory. And because we fall short of his glory, we cannot, or we have to pay the death penalty. So the question is, are you going to pay that penalty for your own sin eternally? Because your sin is against an eternal God, an infinitely great God, and so you need to pay an eternal death, an infinitely great death, to satisfy that wrath of God. And that's what it says in, in Isaiah 53, speaking about Christ, it says that God was pleased. At with that sacrifice because it was an infinitely great sacrifice that could pay for that sin and so we or Christ died because of our sin he was made sin for us who knew no sin as I was thinking about this now grant me the grace of, of if my illustration falls short because I think it's such a difficult thing to illustrate but I was thinking yesterday and this thought plagued me all day because I couldn't get a proper illustration. But yeah, this is a very, very straight mountain slide. Mountain, what do you call this? It's a side of a mountain. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. <laughs> Again, that is, that is the ocean. And now you are born and you're standing on the top of this, this hill. Okay. So here you are, born, innocent, and you're standing on the top of this hill. And so you start living this life, and each time you, you commit a sin, you transgress the law. A small, I want to say a sinker. This is a, this is a sinker, isn't it? What is this what you do fishing with? Sinker, right? A um, piece of lead is tied to you. But I don't want to say it's tied to you with a, with a knot. It's because it's sin, it, it, it grasps into your flesh. And so that hook, like that fishing rod, the hook grasps into your flesh. And at the end of it is a sinker. And each time, you, each time you sin, one piece of lead gets hooked into you. And as you go through life, one thing hooks into you, one thing hooks into you, one thing hooks in you. And you, each day, I mean, think about it. 
If you do one once in a day, once in a day, by the time you're 50, it's 18,250 sins. Okay, by the time you're, by the time, that's once in a day. Now, we tend to think of ourselves as, I'm a relatively good person because I sin, you know, once a day, maybe once a week or something, but it accumulates, right? And so now imagine 1,800, no, yeah, 1,850, what am I saying? I sound like Zuma. 18,000. You see, the thing is, I see the numbers in my head. 18,250. Listen properly, hey? Okay. So, 18,250 sinkers attached to you. And so as you're going, this thing, you start building momentum. And as you start speeding down this hill, and life starts pulling you down, pulling you down, into this abyss. And so as you're sliding down and you're trying by your good works, trying to grasp onto, hitting with a hammer into the side of this mountain, trying to get a grip, but the weight that is dragging you down is just so much heavier than anything you can do to grab hold while you're sliding down to your own damnation. And so you're sliding down, you're sliding down, and you don't know what to do, and you shout out to God, and God comes in, and Jesus comes, and He sees all these entanglements throughout your life. And he comes there, and he cuts off all those cords, and he says, grab hold of the cross at the end of that. And the cross is standing there at the end of that abyss. And you grab onto that cross, and you hold on, and you don't fall off. But Christ is nowhere to be seen. And as you look over the edge, you see all those wires and all those entanglements that are yours have caught hold of him, and it's pulling him down. And Christ falls down, and he falls down into that abyss. And you see that weight, all those sinkers dragging him down as he goes down where you should have gone down. Because you couldn't free yourself. You were sliding at such a speed and you couldn't get those hooks out of you. And so Christ steps in and he, he says, grab hold of the cross. And he goes down on your behalf. And so if that is, if that is what Christ did for us, what does that mean now? Christ has now paid that you are free, but Christ is now down there, being dragged down into hell, as it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 31, where it speaks that his soul went to hell. And so now Christ, is he in, is he in hell today? Has sin defeated him? Has your sin dragged him down into hell and he can't, he can't overcome it? No. <laughs> And that is why the resurrection is so important. It signifies that that sin has been overcome. The sin has been overcome. And so let's have a look at this resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we see in verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians, it says, Whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus. I find it interesting that the Bible repeatedly says whenever you, or regularly when you read about the resurrection, it keeps mentioning God. The apostles preached and he said, we preach Christ whom God raised from the dead. And here it says, whom he raised from the dead. Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And so God is the one who can 
resurrect someone. And we need to know this. We need to have this hope because if we are to have a hope of a resurrection, we need to believe in the one who can resurrect. And it's only he resurrects those who are perfect, who have no sin of their own as erected, resurrected Jesus Christ. And so our sin needs to be laid on Christ for us to be part of that resurrection. Now, I want to paint the picture of what if there was no resurrection. Okay? What if there was no resurrection? Because this is quite a, this is quite a contentious point in, 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 this, in, the, in the philosophical world about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if you can prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have to admit that there is something different about this man and that there is something great about him and that what he has said is true. And if what he said is true, then, well, then there's judgment and then there is hell. And so this is a, this is a point that is, yeah, like I say, very contentious. So you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But if the resurrection was not true, okay, then the first thing, before we get into what it means for salvation, but the first thing is, is that then Jesus would be a liar and all his other statements would be pulled to question. If Jesus did not resurrect, he said he would be risen. Like Jonah was in the belly, so the Son of Man will be in the grave and then he'll be resurrected. He spoke about the temple being broken down and built up in three days. The prophecy of him being resurrected after three days. So Jesus prophesied of his own resurrection. So if he did not get risen from the dead, then what makes his other statements true? Okay, you can question that then. But if there's no resurrection, we can't wait for him to come fetch us. We have no hope of heaven because Jesus is still in hell. If there was no resurrection, Christ is not seated at the right hand of God where he can intercede for us. So we have no hope of salvation. All right? If Christ is not risen, Jesus is still in hell where he's earned a wage for sin. If there's no resurrection, death has not been overcome, but he was overcome by death. If there's no resurrection, there is no salvation, and Christianity is vain. And this is the point that Paul is making, 1 Corinthians 15. We read from verse 13. It says, If there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he raised not up, if so be that, we, uh, that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. Then they also, which are fallen asleep in Christ, are perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So, without the resurrection, this is the picture that Paul is painting. It's all vanity. We are lying in the name of God. That is what we are doing. So, that is if there is no resurrection. 
But there is a resurrection. And so read the end of this chapter. It's at verse 53. End of chapter 15. It says, For this corruptible man must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So then, this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall... um, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that is the picture of life because of the resurrection. And it is... A wonderful, wonderful thing to know that Christ was risen from the dead and that sin no longer, or death no longer has its sting because that law has been removed and Christ has overcome it. And so that is a, a great, great victory and that is why Christians should live victorious Christian lives. Because, not because of us, but because of what Christ has done for us through the resurrection, overcoming sin. All right, let's have a look at Romans chapter 4 quickly. So, believing in the resurrection of Jesus is foundational to Christian faith. There is no gospel without the resurrection. Okay? The resurrection is foundation to, foundational to Christianity. Let's read um, Romans 4 verse 24. It says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. So there we see the resurrection from the dead. Then it says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. You see, our justification is based on Jesus' resurrection. That is why we can stand justified before God. And um, justified means to, to be rendered innocent or to, I always remember it in this sense, to say, be just if I had never sinned, justify. So you stand before God just as if you've never sinned. And obviously that is grace, only by grace. So the resurrection, through the resurrection we have justification. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 verse 11. It says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he hath raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by the Spirit that dwelleth in you. So because of the resurrection, we have hope of a resurrection. We have hope of an eternity with God because of that same Spirit that um, resurrected Jesus is the same Spirit that lives in us. That's quite an amazing thing. Huh? That the spirit that rose, that had the power to raise Christ from the dead is the spirit that lives in us. And so that is why, and only why we have a hope of resurrection. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. I quoted this earlier. Romans 10, verse 9 says that if, you, if thou shalt confess 
with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Salvation is made possible through the resurrection. Do you see how without the resurrection there is no Christianity? And we are all basically a bunch of nutcases for following something that is, a, that is a joke or something that is a lie, essentially. And so the resurrection is foundational to, to Christianity. And this is what separates Christianity from other religions. A lot of people will say all religions are about the golden rule and that is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you or um, just be a good person or how to become a better person. In Christianity, our example is Jesus Christ of what a good person is. In Islam... A good person is Muhammad, and so it's all about just being a good person. And, but then the argument is that you can be a good person without that. You can be a good atheist. And so this is essentially what separates Christianity from other religions. That's why Christianity can make its exclusive claims where Jesus says, For I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, because it's not about good deeds. It's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus has done. Okay? And so the resurrection is what makes it unique. It, it validates what Jesus said. It shows the power of God. It shows that God can grant eternal life. It shows that God is, is greater than any sin that can hold someone down. And so there is a God who loved so much that He gave His Son and so that He could pay the penalty that no man could pay for sin. And that is the reason why Christianity is so exclusive in its claims. Not because, and no Christian should have the idea that I am better than anyone else because I have this exclusive little thing. That's not at all the point. In fact, what it should do to you is to say, I am so blessed to have this message that I should go and reach others who don't understand this message. And the, the sad thing is many people in church don't understand this message. A lot of churches preach how to be a better person. And I'm not saying don't be a better person. I'm saying that is not the foundation of your salvation. Okay. Now, the question when it comes to the resurrection is, is there any, is there any proof? Now, I'm not going to go... Yo, my mind is fried. I was studying Francois last night. If you start going into the proofs of the resurrection or the proof of the existence of God or any of that, it's just like you will forever learn and never learn enough. But there are some proofs for the resurrection and I'll just share a few of them, of them with you, but there are a lot of resources I can point you to if you want to know more about it. But, so one of the proofs for the resurrection, firstly, is that we look at the other prophecies that were fulfilled by Jesus and we say, if these prophecies have been fulfilled, which we know, then we can also say the prophecy of Christ's resurrection, based on that, would also be fulfilled. Okay? So that's a, what you would say is a intrinsic, it's in Scripture. Okay? It's, it doesn't go outside of Scripture. It says, there was prophecies made, yet the prophecies were fulfilled according to Scripture, so we can assume that the prophecy of His resurrection was also fulfilled. Okay? The second proof is that there was an empty tomb. That is a fact, and that is not even disputed by skeptics, okay, that there was an empty tomb. Okay? So the reason for the empty tomb is what is disputed. His body was stolen. They wouldn't make up stories about a stolen body or he was never dead or something like that if there wasn't a problem of an empty tomb. 
Okay, so then you have to go and say, okay, if there is an empty tomb, what is the most likely scenario of why there is an empty tomb? Okay, and so the empty tomb is something that is um, that points to the proof of the resurrection. Now, on the point, I just want to read to you, on the point of his body was stolen, um, I can't remember what this resource, I think it was um, Piper, John Piper. He said, this is an early rumor um, that was made about his body was stolen. Uh, is, it, is it probable? Could they have overcome the gods at the tomb? More important, would they have begun to preach with such authority that Jesus was raised knowing that he was not? Would they have risked their lives and accepted beatings for something they knew was a fraud? Obviously, if you know you're lying, if you know that you stole the body and that it's hidden somewhere, and then you go and you sacrifice your life, you go to the ends of the world, you get crucified upside down, all for a lie. It's highly unlikely. Another, another theory that is made when it comes to the empty tomb is that he was never dead but that he was unconscious when they laid him in the tomb so he awoke removed the stone overcame the soldiers and vanished from history after a few meetings with his disciples in which he convinced them that he was risen from the dead even the foes of Jesus did not try this line he was obviously dead the Romans saw to that. The stone could not be moved by one man from within who had just been stabbed in the side by a spear and spent six hours nailed to a cross. Like he said, this was not even disputed by his foes. His foes did not even try this, this avenue of reason for why the tomb was empty. Okay. Then, another point of evidence for the resurrection is the disciples, like I said, were so convinced that they were willing to change or to die for it. They wouldn't do that for a lie. Another proof for the resurrection is that the complete change in character for, of the disciples. Complete character change. These men went from people who were normal fishermen, people who, had, who were like cowards essentially while Jesus was still alive many of them they didn't really take a bold stance for what for for the gospel but when Jesus resurrected they all of a sudden came out from their hiding place what I want to say and they started preaching immediately in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit came down and so the radical change that happened in them then there's also the account of 500 witnesses and so the the argument was made that you know, it could, be, could have been a vision. These old people hallucinated or something like that, but no one makes the claim that 500 people had a joint hallucination of the same thing, and then that doesn't happen. So the joint hallucination or something is not a valid reason for the resurrection. And then also the conversion of Paul. Paul is based on this meeting with the resurrected Christ. So Paul, who went from someone who hated the Christians, because they were, it was threatening his religion, Judaism, was being threatened. He hated it. He killed them. And he changed like that. So that is something that does not happen every day. And you see, the thing is, a lot of people can say, yeah, but these people were fanatics. They were nutcases. But 
if you, if you read the writings of Jesus, if you read the writings of Paul, that is not the way a nutcase writes. And secondly, a nutcase would not have 2,000 years later still people serving. You don't, you don't hear of people who, were, who made claims of radical things back 2,000 years and they are still followers of that. That doesn't happen. Something supernatural happened here. Something supernatural is surrounding Christianity. All right, let's get back to 1 Thessalonians. Let's finish up the verse. It says, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus. Then it says, Which delivered us from the wrath to come. So because of the resurrection, we are delivered from the wrath. You can open to John chapter 3 so long. Because of the resurrection, we can be delivered from the wrath to come. Now I think the wrath that, that Paul is speaking about here, well, I'd actually... I think it speaks on two things. I think it speaks of eternal wrath, as in the wrath to come. Through the resurrection, through salvation, there is an eternal wrath that we are delivered from. Okay? But there's also the wrath of tribulation. And so the wrath of tribulation, and as in that seven-year tribulation period, we are also um, saved from that wrath. Both of that because of Christ. We save from tribulation wrath, we save from eternal wrath. All through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, in John chapter 3, the point I want to make is you're either choosing to be under grace or under wrath. That is, that is the choice that you make. John chapter 3, verse 36. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. The wrath of God abideth on him. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, it speaks about you were once children of wrath, children of disobedience. In Romans 1 verse 18, it says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. All right? Psalm 7 11 says that God is angry with the wicked every day. Do you, do you see that there is a, a wrath an anger side to God? That, that exists. God is angry. But the thing is, that is not all that God is. He's not just angry with the sinner every day. He does not just leave you to be a child of wrath. Okay? Here is that in, in, in verse 36 of John chapter 3. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Do you see that there's, there's, there is an escape? There is a way to get out under God's wrath. And that is, he that believeth in the Son shall have that everlasting life. So, the question is, are you under grace or under wrath? Are you under grace or under wrath? Because God does not have people who are semi-saved or a sort of Christian or those, those terms do not exist with God. God is God of absolutes, right? Yeah. And so you can't be, be semi-saved or sort of adoptive or maybe forgiven. If you say that, you're saying God does half a job. 
So, are you under wrath or under grace? God's desire for you is not to be under wrath. Go back to 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in verse 9, it says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So God did not appoint us unto wrath. His desire is not for us to be children of wrath. That is what we do through our sin. That is what drags us down, is our decisions, and that puts us under God's wrath. In um, 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 and 4, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Do you see that? That is God's will. It says, Who will have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In 1 John 3, verse 16, we read that hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us. Someone who is just angry with the sinner and is just happy with someone being a child of wrath does not give His own son. He does not lay down His life. He does not have a desire for us to come to a knowledge of, it, of the truth. But God has those things, which means that there's a side of God, His love, that wants us to be saved. And so I want you to know that we are not appointed by this evil God to wrath, but because God is just, He has to punish sin. But because He is just, He has to make a way of escape for sin. And that is why we have the resurrection, and that is why we have Christ. So I want to summarize verse 10 as the following. Through the resurrection, in other words, salvation, we have hope of glorification with Christ and the deliverance from wrath to come. Therefore, we wait actively. Therefore, we wait actively because of the resurrection and the glorification hope we have in Christ and the deliverance from the wrath to come. That brings us to the end of chapter 1. We started off this book of Thessalonians by looking at what, what was the, the purpose of this book. And it was discipleship. It was establishing young Christians in the faith. That is what the purpose is of this book. Paul is writing it to these young Thessalonians to establish them in the basics of the faith. And so this is essentially part of his discipling of these young believers. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, are you being a disciple? And are you being discipled? Remember, we spoke about how Paul was talking about them. We were examples to you, and you became followers of us, and then you were examples to others. That, that process. So are you being an example, an example that leads someone to God? And are you being, or do you have someone you can follow? So those, both of those play part in discipleship. I just want to summarize quickly, the, if this is basic discipleship, what are the basic things that Paul addressed in this chapter? Now there are a lot of things I actually would like to go through each lesson again, just because that's how many things he addresses. But 
The first thing, the key doctrines that's addressed in this first chapter, we see in verse 2 and 3, and that is that we should pray for each other. Pray for each other. Prayer is part of basic, basic Christian living. Another thing that he addresses is understanding that God has chosen you to growth and good works. Verse 4 to 6. God has chosen you to growth and good works. Okay? Another thing that Paul addresses is that effective witnessing is a combination of good theology and a yielded life. Good theology and a yielded life. That is how you are an effective witness and that we see in verse 5. Then in verse 6 we see that follow a good example who will lead you to God. Follow a good example who will lead you to God. Another thing that he addresses is your life. In other words, your deeds and your words should testify of your salvation. It's not a private matter. (laughs) It is something that you should testify of. That's verse 8 and 9. Then in verse 10, we see that repentance is key to salvation and fellowship with God. Repentance is key to salvation and fellowship with God. And then lastly, lastly, we see that Live in the knowledge of victory. A life that knows Christ has risen and is returning. Live in the knowledge of victory. A life that knows uh, that Christ has risen and is returning. And I think that's what Paul speaks to when he says, Reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. Right? You were buried with him, but you were risen with him to walk in newness of life. It comes from this living in this knowledge of victory that you have been given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. That is the first chapter. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful time that we could spend in your word, Lord. We, we learn so much from it. And God, it's an absolute, absolute privilege to be able to, to study and to learn from you. And we thank you for that, Father. Please help us to, to continue learning and to, to through that, Lord, just grow closer and more in love and in awe of who you are. And um, Lord, I ask that you would please help us to live victorious Christian lives and lives that are focused on the grace that has been given to us, a life that is yielded to you because of thankfulness for what you've done for us. And Lord, please come, come help us to be faithful students of your word and Lord, that we would also then practice that which we have learned from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.